Today's reading is Joshua chapter 24, 1 through 24. It can be found on page 220 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shisham. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of the land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of the land. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as also did, did also, excuse me, the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the horn in ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities that you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord, and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the other gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in the, whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed these great signs before your eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive you for your rebellion and your sins. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you, after all, after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord, our God, and obey him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephen. Um, our, you know, I believe strongly that things happen for a reason. And um, so for some reason, that passage was read this morning and came to Stephen. And, uh, and it's not the passage that, we had, that I had planned to talk about. <laughs> so, um, but it's, it's kind of like a bookend of, of Joshua. And I'm going to read now because I can't think of any other way to do this and to also read what is at the very beginning of the book of Joshua. So this is a little bit more reading, but if you're like from the Catholic background, you're, you're going to love this because there's always two, like two or three readings before the homily. All right, so this is, this is Joshua uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2. And I, like I said, I, I just have to read this because I'm going to talk about it, and you won't, you won't know a lot of what I'm saying if I don't read through this. Plus, it's a great story. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the the woman had taken... Uh, the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and, and that a great fear has, of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window. For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had, had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless 
When we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from this oath you have made, made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. One last little piece from chapter 6. six chapter 6, verse 24 and 25. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she, did, she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that wherever we come from this morning as we try to listen to you, that you may meet us and be gracious through what we hear. As some of us come struggling, may you meet us in our struggle. If some of us come with questions, may you help us towards answers. If we come with um, joy, may you just confirm that the joy comes from knowing you and from your good hand. Help us and meet us in what we need this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for bearing with me through that. I, um, it's a lot of readings. Um, I kind of feel like I wish I had a joke to follow that up on, just to kind of, okay, let's, let's get out of that reading mode. But I don't, no joke today. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. I, I feel like what you have to admit, I mean, when you, you open up the book of Joshua, and um, I'm reminded of the fact that when I was a child, I learned a song in Sunday school that I today would not teach to my children. <laughs> and it goes like, it, it, the words are, onward Christian soldiers. Anybody ever got like a tiny bit of familiarity with that song? Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. You can hear right there, as to war. So it's metaphorical, right? But it just, isn't there something today about that that we just kind of go, eh, no thank you. <laughs> Makes us think of things like the Crusades, makes us think of violence, makes us wonder. Quite frankly, what it brings up, you open this book of Joshua, and this is the book. That if you're like most people, as you're processing faith and thinking about the Christian faith, you have a question that this book epitomizes, and that is the question of, really, of the conquest God. How can you have a faith in today's world that includes this God who marches his people into a land and they rob that people of their land and they kill whole tribes on the way. And then you also have this sort of Jesus God as a part of your Christian faith that says, love your enemies and, and peace, blessed are the peacemakers. Isn't a Christian being disingenuous to try to act like those two somehow can be held together? As soon as you open up the book of Joshua, you're at that question. And I, let me tell you, probably there's just like a, a top three or four of questions that you hit that I've heard from people wrestling with the Christian faith, trying to, you know, see if there's validity in it for them. And this is one of those top three or four questions. How do you deal with the conquest? How do you deal with the, the kind of just 
brushing off of all the Canaanites? Is it some kind of genocide? Is this some kind of violent side of God? Is he, is he safe in any way, if that's a part of the picture? And so as we, you know, as we open up the book of Joshua, part of it is to say, is there any kind of plausibility structure at all within which you can still hang on to things if you're going to be not completely ignoring the book of Joshua? Is there any reasonable way to add a support structure to this and to understand what's happening here? And I would say, I mean, just as a sort of clearing the air, just because this is such an elephant in the room with opening up the book of Joshua, just hear, hear me on four very quick kind of helper, helpful insights into the biblical story so that at least, I mean, this isn't going to answer all your questions, but at least you're not coming at the question um, with, with a sort of skeletal naivete that can sometimes, we can sometimes come at this with. At least give it the well-rounded understanding of what the Bible's doing. And the first point I would make is that what's happening in the conquest, what's happening as God is bringing his people into the promised land, is part of a big, grand love story that is the Bible. It's of, a, of something God has created that is, is sort of like the apple of his eye, this world and the people that he put in it. And they've, they've summarily, universally turned from him and polluted and contaminated the whole project. That's the story of the Bible within which this fits. And it's a love story, the kind of, not the kind of sappy, you know, goosebumpy kind of love, but the love that says I, I commit and I'm in it for the long haul. And God's the one making that commitment so much so that he says, you turned your back and, and trashed me and my plan for things, but I'm not going to trash you. I'm going to stick in this and begin the rebuilding effort. And so we read in Psalm 44, just a couple of verses that sort of give that as a sort of lens for what's happening in the, in the book of Joshua, when it says, with your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm and the light of your face for you loved them. This is part of a love story. But it also, it's not just arbitrary. The, 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 the victories in battle, the tribes who were displaced and killed and wiped out because God says move in and wipe them out, it's not arbitrary. And you get this way back already in Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, where God foresees what's happening and basically says the the oppression and violence and warlike nature of these people in Canaan has not grown to its full, full-fledged significance. And so he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It kind of, it's, it's, that's sort of a, a very interesting statement. God foreseeing the deep oppression, violence, an abusive kind of culture that was going to just dominate in this region and saying, it's not, it's not at this level yet. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't deserve what's, what I have planned for a, a people who I'm going to set up and it's going to go out from there. The wickedness isn't, isn't bad enough yet. So if you understand that, then you move into this third point, which is that this, the violence of Joshua fits within a justice framework. Um, if you want to look into these further, there's a book called The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright. And let me just summarize something he says on this point about violence fitting within a justice framework. Um, 
he says, consider two scenarios of someone violently tackled on an airplane. Two scenarios. The first one, it's, oh, because that person's a Muslim. That doesn't sit so well, does it? If, if Violence on that score. But secondly, it's because that person's lighting a shoe bomb. Appropriate uh, <laughs> exclamation from the other room. Some of you are like, I want to be in that room where we're not talking about conquest and war in the Bible. Um, so this, this is just how he summarizes. This is Christopher Wright. He summarizes this. There's a huge moral difference between violence that is arbitrary, arbitrary or selfish and violence that is inflicted under strict control within a moral framework of punishment. In other words, the God of the Bible's actions are not arbitrary. They're not excessive, selfish, or malevolent. Fits within a justice. You might, you may not like the justice framework. <laughs> That's another point. But just to say that it's not arbitrary. And in fact, it's so not arbitrary that one of the consistent warnings to God's people, the Israelites, is sorry. I know this is good. This is very like, like college lecture almost. But we're just about done. The the very the constant warning of God to the Israelites is, if you turn on my covenant and you become oppressive, warlike, violent. The same is going to be true of you. So it's not favoritism. It's fitting within a a moral framework of justice that is God's framework. And then lastly, just to say that the God of the Bible, despite this one-time conquest, and it is just a one-time incursion into a land to take it so that God's plan can be carried out, this one-time conquest is moving towards peace. So much so that we read things like, In Isaiah, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This is the future God has in mind. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will not even train for war anymore. That's in the book of Isaiah. And what happens that confirms this is that when David, the greatest war general of Israel and the king, when he finishes up all kind of clearing the land of all the Canaanites finally, and pretty much everyone's dealt with with and the promised land is theirs, he does what generals of his day always did is build a temple for the God who helped them win the victory. And so he goes about to do this and God says, no, there's blood on your hands. My temple will not be built with this memory and built by a war general because that's basically that's not where this is going. Isn't that interesting? He wouldn't let David, the victory king and general, build his temple. So it's, it's kind of complex. It's difficult to wrap your mind around. But really, that brings us perfectly to the story today because this story is about God's wild grace, Rahab's risky receptivity, and then a final big risk. And now we'll go kind of quicker through these things than normal because I've spent a lot of time just clearing out the, the clutter, I think, of what questions we have coming to this text. First of all, God's wild grace, and then Rahab's risky receptivity, and then the big risk. God's wild grace. So we open up the book of Joshua, and here we are, basically right at the beginning of it. We're reading about Rahab, the prostitute, helping out these spies. Today's main punchline, and really the big first act of the play of Joshua, of the play of the conquest, the big surprises, we're going to, at this very moment as the conquest begins, we're going to write into the story of God this Canaanite woman prostitute, and she's going to become this chapter in the story of God's people. 
In fact, so much so that you, you flip over to Matthew chapter 1, and in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, the new Joshua, because Jesus' name means Joshua, just a different pronunciation of it. The new Joshua's genealogy goes in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Matthew. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. It's, it's not just a fluke. It's not like, well, I guess we, we, we're going to need the help of someone going into this land, so um, uh, we'll, we'll just use whoever comes our way, and then that person will, will do their job, and then that'll be good. No, this, there's, something, there's something way too prominent about this. This woman with no credentials led in to have a, to have an, a place of honor amidst the people of God. What does that sound like? If you've read this book, or if you've hung out at City Life Church, that sounds like a major foretaste of the gospel. The gospel creates the credential-free zone and invites you into it. Do you think, do you think that your credentials or your accomplishments are getting you closer to God? Do you think that God's sort of saying, well, maybe towards you kind of has this, well, I'll wait and see with you until you accomplish your way to me or work your way to me? No, throw your religious deeds aside. Throw your accomplishments in this world aside. Throw your money aside. Throw your, throw your reputation aside and walk into the credential-free zone that comes with God. This is a major foretaste of the gospel that comes through Jesus right here in Joshua chapter 1. This is God's wild and free grace. And what happens? But there's this other person, and this is the, where I would almost recommend reading the whole story yourself, reading kind of through chapters 1 all the way through 7, because chapter 6 ends, and it dovetails with chapter 7, and chapter 7 takes over with this person named Achan, who has all the credentials. His genealogy is even listed in chapter 7. Achan is a true Israelite, and what does he do but amidst the, amidst the Canaanite, or amidst the Jericho toppling, he grabs some of the plunder for himself. And so he goes against some of the very clear things God has said. I won't go into it, but basically what ends up happening is in chapter 7, he gets written out of God's grand story. But So he's got all the credentials. Rahab has nothing, and she's just brought on in. After all the chapters and chapters before this, if you've read the Bible in the beginning at all, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all these this ritual purity and, and reasons why you should stay away from the Canaanites and not intermarry. And this Canaanite woman who measures up to none of that just walks right in and has an honorable place in the story of God when the person with credentials is written out because they turn out to be basically an enemy in the camp. This is God's story of grace right here, and it's wild and free, and you are invited into it. You're invited into the credential-free zone. Now, secondly, there's... There's risky receptivity that Rahab reflects in this story. Very risky. What you see is this amazing interplay between her and Achan. They're they're meant to be compared. I know we didn't read about Achan. I'm sure you're glad we didn't add another chapter of reading on. But 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 her and Achan, if you I'd love to have a chart. If I was was teaching a class, I'd have a big chart with Hebrew words on it and so forth. And and you'd see the parallel of three things between Rahab and Achan. Their stories are dovetailed, they're meant to be compared. Here's Rahab, she comes in and she hides the spies. And then she deceives the king and at the very risk of all her family and her household, what does Achan do? He hides 
the plunder. He deceives Joshua and everyone else and at the risk of his whole family and his household. They're, they're right next to each other. These two different ways of kind of risking everything for whatever you're putting at the center of your life. Fascinating. Basically, it's, are you going to risk all to be receptive or to be unreceptive to God? Are you going to risk all in such a way that you're wanting God's story be written around your life or you're going to go write your own story? Are you risking all to, <clears throat> because for trust and obedience or are you risking all in doubt and objection? And one of the questions, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, the question is, am I actively risking things in order to get written into God's big story right now? Am I actively risking sort of that way that Rahab is all out to be written into God's story and to get more of God's grace? What are you risking for grace right now? Would be the question. Or the converse, how are you risking things for something that really is just not going to be much of a story at all in the end? Risk is a part of faith, and, you know, risking, even grace, the offer of grace ends up being very risky. We got a couple of responses last week from the question, what's the important, what's the inherent risk of receiving grace? And someone said, we fear that if we accept this full and all-encompassing acceptance, we'll have to give up everything. We'll have to change. We'll have to grow. We'll have to extend grace to others. Someone else said, receiving grace means admitting that our efforts to earn and deserve salvation mean nothing in God's economy. What do you need to risk today to receive grace? (laughs) Rahab gives a profession of faith in a sense. That's really what it is in chapter 2. When she's talking to the spies on the roof and she says in chapter Uh, chapter 2, verse 10, she says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, two kings of Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She's professing what she believes. She's professing her faith. Rahab risks for this confession, this profession of faith. If you compare it, again, the comparison to Achan, his profession is this. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. I mean... Talk about two very different confessions, two different professions of faith. You are Lord. This land is going to be given over to you. I want in your story. And I saw those pretty gadgets and I really wanted them. So I, so I hid them. What are you risking for? This is, this, this is a hymn that I put in the worship guide. You can find it as the reflection this week. The second verse of it. It's by John Senek, and it's called Children of the Heavenly King. He says, Lord, obediently we go, gladly leaving all below. Only thou our leader be, and we will still follow thee. That's the kind of risky following that we're led to consider with Rahab's all-out risk. She's all in. She's saying, 
Lord, obediently we go, gladly leaving all. Only thou, our leader, be, and we shall still follow thee. All right, last, the big risk. Because that risky behavior of Rahab, you say, wow, she laid it all on the line to be written into God's story. And you might feel like that's a pretty high standard, and it is. In fact, I think it's given to us as a standard that, should, that we're going to bang up against and realize we fall short. And according to the New Testament, that's okay because you don't make the big risk. Your connection to God, your acceptance or coming into God's promised land, which I think should be understood as your relationship with God after Jesus, your connection and relationship with God, you being at home with God, doesn't rely on your brave risk-taking. Because Christians today look back like Rahab looked at the mighty acts of God, bringing them out of Egypt, and Christians today look back at the mighty acts of the new Joshua, Jesus. Jesus came and he combines, think about it this way, Jesus combines the reckless bravery, Jesus combines the reckless bravery of Rahab with the mighty, powerful acts of God bringing people out of Egypt. Okay, think about that. So Jesus combines the risky behavior of Rahab and the mighty God kind of bringing you out of Egypt behavior of the God of the Old Testament. Jesus takes the big risk for you. And that's what grace is. Grace is is not that you're going to be risky and brave enough today to walk out of this door and finally be a real Christian. Or you've finally found the right to-do list that's going to make you feel at peace in the world because now you can do it. Now you can be brave enough. Grace is that God took the big risk in your place. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was risking all like Rahab did. He was risking everything all of his life. And he goes to the cross... And when he's on the cross, that's where he's going the way of Achan. Jesus becomes both Rahab and Achan. He becomes the one on whom our salvation comes. So he lives the life you should have lived, and yet he dies the death that you deserve, you and I deserve. That's the gospel. That's grace. And you know what it does? Because of the death of Jesus, you and I are left with absolutely no legitimate complaint about the risks that it might involve to follow Jesus or to become a Christian or get baptized or whatever kind of hump is before you. What, what complaint do you have if that's how Jesus risked all to open the door and invite you in free of charge? What risk are you going to complain about in the end if you know that that's true of Jesus? There's this great poem that I think kind of summarizes well the sort of leap of faith required. It's called A New Way of Struggling by Susan Roch. To struggle used to be to grab with both hands and shake and twist and turn and push and shove and not give in, but rest and answer from it all, as Jacob did a blessing. But there is another way to struggle with an issue, a question. Simply jump off into the abyss and find ourselves floating, falling, 
tumbling, being led slowly and gently but surely to the answers God has for us, to watch the answers unfold before our eyes and still to be a part of the unfolding. But, oh, the trust necessary for this new way, not to be always reaching out for the old handholds, a new way of struggling. Friends, I want to encourage you to go all in for God's grace. Whatever actual specific action that looks like for you this week, to push the barriers aside, to take that step. I would love nothing more than to hear stories, whether with joyful smiles or painful tears, of more and more people at City Life pushing away all fears and all risks to be written into the story of God's grace and to watch God's story unfold in your life. Let us pray. Our God of grace, thank you for uh, your words. Even though we might not be so thankful for them as we consider taking risks to step into the grace that you so willingly provide. Help us on our journey. God, I don't know the name of our friend who walked in during this message, but I pray for him as well and for his journey. Thank you. God, we lift up James wherever he goes out from here, whatever his life has meant up to this point, whatever his story is going to look like as you continue writing it. He is your child. Walk with him. Give him peace as we ask for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.